can't go on now. Lord, we are so grateful to you, Lord, that there is nothing that can hold us down. Because that tomb was empty, Lord, we know that one day we will rise up out of our grave as well. And Lord, we pray as time draws near that we wouldn't even see death, Lord, but be taken out of here. We cry, Maranatha, Lord, come quickly, come quickly as we see things around us beginning to draw closer and closer and closer to your return. It is an exciting time, and it is a scary time, Lord. Scary for those who don't know you. So I pray, Lord, that your word would reach far and wide, and that all hearts would be touched. We pray, Lord, that all mankind would come to you, especially in these last days. So go before us here today. We ask it and pray it in your precious name. Amen. Well, good morning. And good morning to all my family and friends on Facebook Live. It is a blessing to be with you guys here this morning, our electronic church and our live church. What a blessing. We are in Revelation chapter 3, the church of Laodicea. And so if you need a Bible, slip up your hand, we'll get you a Bible. If you're home and you need a Bible, well, I'm sure it's on the shelf there where you left it last week. Sorry. Revelation chapter 3. And listen, we've got a lot to cover this morning. There's a lot of verses here. Um, So hopefully you don't have anything in the oven because it's going to be a while. We're going to be in verses 14 to 22. Today, Lord willing, we'll close out our seven letters, our study in the seven letters to the seven churches. And I hope that you've been as blessed by this as I have. It's been an amazing time. And so we want to jump right into this this morning because we do have a lot of ground to cover. So who is the, where is the address? Where is this letter addressed to? And it's addressed to the city of Laodicea. Laodicea is situated between Phrygia and Lydia. And I know that you know exactly where that is. It's on the banks of the Lycus River and It's about probably 90 miles, 90 to 100 miles north of Ephesus, and about 30 miles um, east of Ephesus, rather, and about 30 miles from Philadelphia. It is located, as I said, on the Lycus River, and so you um, you have Laodicea here, right across the river is Hierapolis, up the river a ways is Colossae. So all three of these cities are right in the same area, and as we're going to discover this morning, when Paul wrote his letter to the Corinth, to the Colossians, rather, he addresses both Laodicea and Hierapolis in that letter. It was once called Dysopolis, which means the city of Zeus, but was renamed later Laodicea in honor of the wife of Antiochus II, Laodice. The city was also, as the other cities in this area, destroyed by an earthquake in 66 A.D., But this city was so wealthy, so wealthy, that it needed absolutely no financial help from Rome whatsoever. Not that Rome didn't offer, but they decided to rebuild the entire city through their own resources. It was a banking, political, and actually Christian center of the area. Today, it is a heap of ruins. Um, The Turks call it Ekisar, or Old Castle. 
And there is a modern Turkish city right near these ruins called Denizli. Denizli is right is a modern city in Turkey, but right near this, not built on the ruins, but nearby. And so as you're going to see as we go through this letter this morning, it's not so much the history of the city that matters, it's what this city is famous for. It's what this city is famous for that Jesus is going to use to convict it to repent. First, they were famous for their wealth. This city, Laodicea, is hands down the wealthiest city of the seven. It is absolutely the city with the most money of all the other cities combined. Second, it was known for its banking. It was a banking and financial center. It even had a gold exchange. It was kind of like the Wall Street of Asia Minor. It had a medical center, and so it was well known for a school of medicine, which was there. They treated patients from around the world there with an eye salve called Phrygian powder. One of the principles of medicine at that time was that compound diseases needed compound medicines to cure them. One of the compounds that they discovered there and used there was a treatment for the ears. It was made from spikenard, which is an aromatic plant, and that was only found in Laodicea, which all added to their wealth, right? Um, Galen, the physician and surgeon in the Roman Empire, says that at this time, this ear treatment was the, the only, Laodicea was the only place that you could come for this kind of treatment. Galen and Aristotle both spoke of this salve made from the powder of the Phrygian stone. This Phrygian stone was only found in Laodicea, and they would crush it up, grind it into a powder, and make that powder into a salve, apply it to your eyes, and it actually helped people see better. Industry, number four. It was known for its textile industry because they produced there a fine black wool that was very, very soft and very sought after. By the first century, Laodicea was one of the leading centers of design and a leading manufacturer of stylish clothing. As a matter of fact, I buy all my clothes there. This soft black wool that they produced set them apart from all other textile manufacturers in the area. And so they produced this famous, seamless, expensive tunic called a trimita. And so that was something else that added to their great wealth and their world renown. This special wool that they, that they manufactured there was also exported far and wide, and it was used for carpets and rugs. And then fifthly, geography. Location, location, location. This area was in the fertile Lycus Valley, which added to their wealth. It was also the crossword roads, rather, of the north-south traffic between Sardis and Pergamus, and the east-west traffic from Ephesus to the Euphrates, so it made this city a well-known, widely-traveled trade route, which again brought great wealth into the city. And so this is what put Laodicea on the map, but it was also what caused Jesus to notice this church, and as he says, I know your works, as he said that to all the churches, I know your works, and listen, he knows their works, and he is not pleased with them. <clears throat> so who is the addressee? Well, Revelation chapter 3 in the verse part of, first part rather, verse 14 tells us, 
and to the angel of the church of the Laodiceans write. Notice anything strange about this address? It's a little different than the other churches, isn't it? And it's led many to interpret that this church is of the people because it's the church of the Laodiceans, right? So it's led many to believe that this was the church of the people, and there's some truth in that. But there's also some textual um, variance issues with this translation because all the early Greek manuscripts have this as to the church of Laodicea, which would make it the same as the other six churches, right? Laodicea is a compound Greek name derived from Leo, meaning the people, and Dica, meaning justice. So they were a people of justice. Their very name carries with it the idea of of the people or the rule of the people. In other words, they ruled themselves is the idea. And so from the very name, their very name, Laodicea, we can see that this city was a people, was a city of the people, for the people, or maybe a better way to describe this church was a church of individuals for individuals. So there's also a belief that this church was filled with non-believers, and there's some reasons for that. I'm going to mention, I'm not going to mention all of them. There's 110. I'm just going to give you 90. I'm just going to give you three, actually. This is the reasons that people or scholars believe that this church was a church filled with non-believers. Jesus had nothing good to say to this church. Well, if that's your argument, Jesus had nothing good to say to Sardis either, and we know Sardis had believers in it. The second reason they use is that it was lukewarm spiritually, and a lukewarm Christian is not a Christian at all. But as you were going to find out this morning, it's the lukewarmness wasn't a gauge of their spiritual temperature. It was a reflection upon the works that they did, or lack thereof. And in verse number 3, rather, in verse 20, it says Jesus is on the outside trying to get in, right? And so they look at this as meaning they're non-believers because this verse has been used out of context so often. How many here believe this verse is an evangelical verse? A verse that you would witness to somebody. That Jesus is on the outside of a non-believer's heart waiting to come in. But that's not what this verse means. It simply means that Jesus wants to come in and fellowship with them, as he does with all believers. So, please allow me now to give you the reasons why I believe this is a church with believers and some non-believers mixed in. And wouldn't you say that describes the church of today? Because listen, this letter to the Laodiceans, as we know that it's not only an actual church, but it represents church throughout the age. And we are living today in the age of the Laodicean church. We are the lukewarm church. Not this church particularly, but the church in general. So there's 14 reasons why I believe this is a church full of believers. And again, I'm going to just give you the highlights. Go back to Revelation chapter 1. No, don't do that now, but... In Revelation chapter 1, John writes to the seven churches which are in Asia. Seven churches, not six. In the Greek, the word church is what? You Greek scholars out there. Ekklesia. Ekklesia. And ekklesia means called out ones. So this is a church filled with called out believers. That's what a believer is called, a called out one. We're called out, we're set apart. 
Now, the church may be cardinal, the church may preach false doctrine, as Thyatira did, but it's a church nonetheless, a church with believers. It may be a church filled with carnal Christians preaching false doctrine, but it is a church nonetheless. Second, again going back to Revelation chapter 1, John sees Jesus in the midst of what? Seven golden lampstands, right? And those seven golden lampstands represent what? Church. Seven churches. So this is a church of believers. Number three, John calls himself a brother and companion in the tribulation and kingdom and patience of Jesus uh, to the seven churches, right? So John's a believer. John would not say this, that he's a brother of a non-believer. So John's addressing Laodicea as well as fellow believers. And number four, Jesus says to this church, as many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. And we know from Hebrews 12 that the Lord only chastens those who are who? His. He only chastens those who are His. And that's probably the strongest argument here. Number five, Jesus calls them, as He does all the previous churches, overcomers. Overcomers. Non-believers are not overcomers, are they? He only uses that word to reference believers. So I reduced 14 down to 5. Pretty good, right? And I added a whole bunch of more stuff so that we'll make up for that. But there is another proof that this letter is addressed to believers. Paul writes to them in his letter to the church in Colossae, which I just mentioned is just across the river from them. For I want you to know what great conflict I have for you and those in Laodicea, and for as many as have not seen my face in the flesh, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, and attaining to all riches of the full assurance of understanding, to the knowledge of the mystery of God, both the Father and of Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Colossians chapter 2, verses 1-3. through three. So Paul wrote this letter some 30 years prior to this letter being written from John, from Jesus to John to the church. And so we already see that there are some issues in this church because Paul addresses the same issues in Colossae, Hierapolis, and Laodicea. Now Paul writes and prays, which is his practice, and Paul is a prayer, if that's even a word, that these churches be unified in love, not only for each other, but for their neighbors. And you're going to see that the Laodicean church was absent from that. They were minus that love for others and for themselves. He writes that they would understand, that they would be knowledgeable of the mystery of God. And one of those mysteries that Paul points out in the letter to the Colossians is the mystery of the church as a body, as a whole, as united as one, as one in Christ. And so as we're going to learn, the church in Laodicea was not functioning that way. They were not functioning as a united body. They were not being the hands and feet of Jesus to the world around them. And Paul also mentions them in chapter 4 of his letter to the Colossians. He writes, Epaphras, who is one of you, a bondservant of Christ, greets you always, laboring fervently for you in prayer, that you may stand perfect and complete in, in all the will of God. For I bear him witness that he has great zeal for you and those who are in Laodicea and those in Hierapolis. Luke, the beloved physician, and Demas greet you. 
Greet the brothers who are in Laodicea and Nymphus and the church that is in his house. Now when this epistle is read among you, see that it is read also in the church of the Laodiceans, and that you likewise read the epistle from Laodicea. Colossians chapter 4, verses 12 through 17. Paul's main theme in his letter to the Colossians is a total and complete sufficiency in Christ, that Christ is all we need, that we have all that we need in Jesus Christ. And for the church in Laodicea, this message is something that they needed to hear, that Christ was all sufficient. It wasn't their wealth, it wasn't their power, it wasn't their possessions. All they needed was Jesus Christ. And listen, we know that they heard the words of Paul because Paul said that this letter, the letter to the Colossians, is to be read to the Laodicean church. And that happened some 30 years before this letter. So we know that this letter to the Colossians was read in the church in Laodicea and also hopefully read in the church of Hierapolis. What we don't know is where the letter that was written from the Laodiceans is. Apparently there was a letter, epistle letter from the Laodiceans. We don't have that one. But we do have the church, we do have the one written to the church in Colossae. Now, all of this hopefully is evidence that this is a church of believers. But listen, just by the fact that we have to present so much evidence that this is a church of believers gives us a a glimpse or or an idea that this church has some issues. This church has a problem. Because we really, I really had to go through a little time here to prove to you that this is a church of believers. Can you imagine if you had to convince someone else that you were a believer and spend half a day trying to do that? That would mean that there's a problem with you, right? So the fact that we have to stand here and present all this proof that they are a church of believers means there's a problem with this church. We need to pay particular attention to this church this morning. Don't dismiss this message. Please don't make the mistake of sitting here and saying, well, that's not me. That's not me. Just as I hope you didn't make that mistake in the other churches, because we could take a little bit away from each of these churches. There's a little bit of all of of us, a little bit of these churches, rather, in all of us, to some extent. I want you to hear what the Holy Spirit has to say to those with ears. Because we need to ask ourselves, is this me? Is this me? Has this happened to me? Especially for the fact that this was written to the very church age that we live in today. So who is the author of this letter? That's the second part of verse 14. These things says the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. So this is how Jesus describes himself to the church in Laodicea. He gives them three characteristics. First, he says, I'm the amen. Now, amen is derived from the Hebrew word, amin. And it means with certainty, or truth, or verily. How many times did Jesus say, verily, verily, I say unto you? We use it at the end of all of our prayers, don't we? We use it so that we're in agreement with God's will for our lives, because it means, let it be, or so be it. And in this verse, that's how Paul writes to the Corinthians. He writes it the same, you know, he writes with that same idea that it is the amen, so let it be. He says, For the promises of God in him are yes, and in him amen. 
to the glory of God through us. So we say amen at the end of our prayers to be in agreement with God's will for our lives. But this is so much more. It means so much more. In Isaiah chapter 65, verse 16, we're going to read, and I'm going to read from two different versions. I'm going to read first from the New King James Version, and then second from the Orthodox Hebrew Bible. And I learned Hebrew especially for this verse, and hopefully you know Hebrew as well. Isaiah 65, verse 16, in the New King James Version says, So that he who blesses himself in the earth shall bless himself in the God of truth, and he who swears in the earth shall swear by the God of truth. Now, in the Orthodox Jewish Bible, it says, That he who blesseth himself in Haaretz shall bless himself by the God of Amen, the God of truth. Just a little bit different. And that, that verse in the Jewish Bible calls God the God of Amen. And so Jesus is telling the church of Laodicea, I am the God of Amen. I am the God of truth. I am the truth. And so what he's telling them is what I'm about to tell you, what I'm about to reveal to you, is the truth. He says, I'm the faithful and true witness. Now a witness, right, one, testifies to what they see, and two, is, should be, hopefully, honest and trustworthy. That word faithful in the Greek means trustworthy, and true means true or genuine. And we see this description of Jesus a little later on in chapter 19 of Revelation. Now when I saw heaven open, to behold a white horse, and he who sat on him was called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. Revelation 19.11 so Jesus is trustworthy and true in all that he says and all that he does, making him the perfect witness. Perfect witness. He's such a perfect witness that he's been entrusted to give us the witness of God. In John chapter 3, verse 34, we read, For he whom God has sent speaks the words of God. Jesus speaks the words of God. For I have not spoken on my own authority, Jesus said, but the Father who sent me gave me a command that I should say and what I should speak, John 12, 49. So Jesus speaks the word of God because he and the Father are one. And the words that he's going to speak to the church in Laodicea comes from the highest authority possible. It comes from God. And Jesus is later going to tell them that you don't even know your spiritual condition. You don't even know that you're lukewarm. You don't even know that you're wretched, naked, poor, and blind. You don't even know that you're those things. The Bible tells us, right, to be still and know that he's God. But sometimes when our lives get so busy, so noisy, so filled with everything in the world, so occupied, preoccupied with everything going on, that we miss something the Lord is trying to tell us. And that's what was going on in Laodicea. They were so busy with everything going on in the world, so preoccupied by everything around them, they were missing what the Lord had been telling them all along, what the Lord had been putting on their heart all along, because they were never still to listen to his still small voice. And so there's times when the Lord has to remind us who's in control of our lives, and he has to remind us to be still and listen for that still small voice. And so the Laodiceans needed that reminder, and Jesus gives it to them in this letter. And he says, I am the beginning of creation. And this is his title. He's the first and the last. He's the beginning and the end, the alpha and the omega. 
That word in the Greek means origin or the source. Jesus is telling the church in Laodicea, I am the very source, the very origin of all creation. And so we know that from John chapter 1, right? John chapter 1 tells us, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, all things were made through Him, and without Him nothing was made that was made. Paul wrote to the Colossian church, For him all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things consist. Colossians chapter 1, verses 16 through 17. So he knows all things because he was before all things. So only his witness can be faithful and true. Only his witness is without any doubt. He is the faithful and true witness. So next in our outline of these letters is affirmation. What did Jesus have good to say about this church? Absolutely nothing. There's no affirmation for this church, just like there was no affirmation for the church in Sardis. Jesus is going to go right from his description right to what he has a problem with in this church, the admonition of the church. Look at verses 14 through 15. Or just 15. I know your works, that you are neither hot nor cold. I could wish you were cold or hot. So that because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will vomit you out of my mouth. Jesus says, I know your works. He said that to the church of Philadelphia too, didn't he? But for the church of Philadelphia... That was a reason to rejoice, wasn't it? Not so much for the church in Laodicea. They are, hands down, the wealthiest church and hands down probably the church with the most problems, the church that Jesus had the biggest issue with. That doesn't bode very well for our church, that we live, that the church age that we live in now, does it? In the introduction to the city, I mentioned that despite the wealth in the city, they didn't have, or maybe I didn't mention it, but they had a problem with water. They didn't have their own water source. Despite their wealth, their, their, their great wealth that they had in the city, they did not have a viable source of water. So they had to get their water from somewhere else. And where they got their water from was from Hierapolis across the Lycus Valley. It was piped into the city via an aqueduct. It had to come down about six miles from Hierapolis. Now, that wouldn't be a problem except that the water in Hierapolis was hot mineral springs. And so that was the water that they were piping into Laodicea. By the time this hot mineral water got to the city, it wasn't hot and it wasn't cold. It was tepid or lukewarm. Remember when you were a kid and you picked up the garden hose that was laying in the driveway all day long in the hot sun? And that first gulp of water that you got, you just spit it out because it was disgusting. That's how Jesus describes the church in Laodicea. That's how Jesus describes the church today. They were tepid. They were lukewarm. The lukewarmness of this church isn't the measure of their spiritual fervor, or should I say lack of spiritual fervor. It's not a measure of that. It's a condemnation of their works or lack of their works. You see, the hot mineral springs in Hierapolis brought healing to those who bathed in them. 
And the cold water that flowed from Colossae, and don't ask me why they didn't get their water from Colossae, maybe it was too far away, and, and probably by the time that got there, it would have been lukewarm as well, but that brought refreshment to all who drank it, right? One commentator writes, hot water heals, cold water refreshes, but lukewarm water is useless for either purpose. You see, the church of Laodicea was ineffective. They were just a church in name only. They were ineffective witness for Christ. They didn't provide spiritual healing for the spiritually sick, and they didn't provide spiritual refreshment for the spiritually weary. They just went through their day unfazed, unnoticing the world around them, the pain and suffering around them. They were in a daze when it came to the sin condition of the world that was all around them. They'd walk down the streets of Laodicea with blinders on. They'd meet in their wealthy homes with all the trappings and all the things and all the possessions that they had, unaware that there was a world around them dying without Jesus Christ. Listen, if you don't care about the people around you, then you're not going to have much love for the brothers and sisters next to you either. They were indifferent. They were indifferent to all those around them. And Eli Weissel is quoted as saying, the opposite of love is not hate. It is indifference. They were indifferent. And that definition means having no particular interest or sympathy or to be unconcerned. And that describes the church in Laodicea to its very core. They were indifferent. And this made Jesus nauseous. Now, not just, we like to think it means just spit it out, just spit the water out. But that's not what it means here. It's much stronger than that. It actually means Jesus vomited them. They made him sick to his stomach. How would you like to be a church that Jesus says, you make me sick? That's pretty powerful, isn't it? Now, some might ask, is indifference a sin? And I love the way one author answered this question. They said, well, only if you take seriously the weight of God's instructions to be kind and tender-hearted towards one another, to love one another fervently, to listen and bear with one another, to speak the truth in love, to confess our sins to one another so that they may be healed, to forgive as we've been forgiven, to welcome the stranger, to share our bread with the hungry, to do justice, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with our God, only if you believe that in Christ there is no longer Greek nor Jew, slave nor free, male nor female, for all of us are one in Christ. So if you take that seriously, then yes, indifference is a sin. Lukewarmness or indifference is a lack of passion for anything of God. The opposite of indifference would be passion. And the closest thing we have to passion in the New Testament is zeal. So what does the Bible say about us having zeal for the things of God? Paul wrote to Titus, Jesus Christ who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself his own special people zealous for the works of God. He wrote to the Romans, never be lacking in zeal but keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. So ask yourself this simple question. What's God passionate about? What's God passionate about? What's God zealous for? And am I 
passionate or zealous for what God is passionate or zealous for. <clears throat> you see, your heart is where your treasure is. And if your heart is for the things of God, that's your treasure. And if your heart just isn't in it, then your treasure isn't in it either. And we tend to be passionate about whatever our heart treasures, don't we? And that passion or zeal is what fuels our life as a Christian. But I want to make this very clear to followers of Jesus Christ. You can be against racism. You can be against abortion. God's also against those things. But we need to be passionate about. We need to have a zeal for spreading the love of God. Spreading the love of Christ in all of these areas. You see, we shouldn't be known for what we are against. We should be known for who we are for. We're for Jesus. We're for his love and his mercy and his grace. And believe me, sometimes it's, not hard, it's, it's very hard separating ourselves away from some of these social issues, isn't it? But as I said last week, we're on his side. Not the side of a cause, not a group. We're on the side of God, and God does not choose sides. So we need to be as passionate and have as much zeal for sharing the gospel message as we do for some of these social issues we're involved in. As a matter of fact, I would say that's all we should have zeal for is the gospel message. The heart of the church of Laodicea did have, had no zeal whatsoever. We're not passionate for the things of God. Another thing a Christian should be passionate about or have zeal for is repentance. And that's what Jesus is going to counsel this church a little later on. He's going to counsel them how to correct all of this. And he's going to say you need to have zealous repentance. Now please note that any correction in our life begins with repentance. Not a half-hearted repentance. That gets us nowhere. But a real passion, a real zeal for change in our life. Amen? Look at verse 17. Because you say, I am rich, have become wealthy, and have need of nothing, and do not know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. So Jesus opens their eyes to some things that they were actually blind to. They were rich in their eyes. They believed they had everything they needed. Because their Wealth was so great, they had need of nothing. Nothing. Nothing or anything of God, including Jesus. And three, they had no clue of their spiritual condition. So they looked around, they looked at what they had, they looked at their bank account, they saw their material possessions, they had plenty of money in the bank, they had a nice home, and they counted all of these things, all of these tangible material things, as blessings. They were blessings. They had all they needed. They didn't need anything or anyone because they were self-sufficient. Here's a city that rebuilt their entire city just from their own resources. That's how wealthy they were. But are these blessings according to the Bible? And if you consider them blessings, then what if you lose those things in your life? Does that mean you've lost your blessing? And what if you don't have any of those things? Does that mean that you're not blessed at all? You see the problem with this? There's a problem believing that material things, possessions, wealth, are a blessing from God. So what are true biblical blessings from God? 
Ephesians chapter 1 verse 3 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. We have many blessings that we cannot see right now. They're not tangible to us, but they're greater than any physical health or material abundance that we may have. Some of those blessings that we have are this. Number one, we're blessed because we have eternal life. He who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have life. These things I have written to you, that who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life, and that you may continue to believe in the name of the Son of God. Second, we're blessed because we are adopted sons and daughters of the King. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him, in love he predestined us for adoption as sons through Christ Jesus, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 4 through 6. Third, we are blessed because we have a guaranteed inheritance, and we have been sealed with the promise of the Holy Spirit. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who are the first to hope in Christ might be the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of the truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of his glory. Ephesians 1, verses 11 through 14. And I love the way one commentator sums all this up. They said, buying your dream house, restoring your health, and experiencing loss and trials in this life all begin to pale in comparison as we grasp the eternal inheritance that we are guaranteed as a child of God. Our citizenship will be in the new Jerusalem, an unshakable, secure, and eternal kingdom. Those are the blessings that we have. That thief cannot break in and steal. That rust and moth cannot destroy. These are the true blessings that we have. And as followers of Jesus Christ, you and I are blessed beyond what we could think or imagine. All these perceived blessings of wealth that the Laodiceans have was just cause for them to forget who Jesus was in their life. They were self-sufficient. They could do all things through the money and possessions that they had, not through Christ. Agar, who wrote one of the Proverbs, wrote this. Two things I request of you. He's talking, praying to the Lord. Deprive me not before I die. Remove falsehood and lies far from me. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food allotted to me, lest I be full and deny you and say, Who is the Lord? Or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of my God. God is sufficient for all of our needs. And that is what the main theme of the letter to the Colossians. That's what, that's what Paul tried to, to get across to them and also to the Laodiceans and also to the church in Hierapolis. Jesus is all that you need. And if you have an abundance, that means you have more than you need, right? And so that means that God's given you an abundance to do what with it? To share it with others. To help others in need. The Laodiceans were like that rich man in Luke's gospel who had an abundant harvest, right? 
And instead of helping his neighbors who were poor and needy, he built more storehouses for himself to store all this abundance that he had. And he sat back and he thought, I have plenty of grain laid up for many years. Take life easy. Eat, drink, and be merry. Luke chapter 20. But God said to him, remember, you fool. This very night your soul will be required of you. This is how it will be with whoever stores up for themselves but is not rich toward God. And so like this rich man in Luke's gospel, the Laodiceans had no clue that they were in a state of indifference, that nothing else around them mattered. The only thing that mattered to them was their bank account. The only thing that mattered to them was them as an individual. They were blind to that condition, and and Jesus snaps them back into reality by telling them just how far they've drifted away. And he says to them, again in verse 17, Don't you know that you're wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked? So Jesus is describing their spiritual condition now, and it's not very good, is it? This this chart hanging on the end of their hospital bed doesn't read very well for them. They're wretched. Now, Paul wrote to the church in Rome, O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? I thank God through Christ Jesus our Lord. Paul recognized the fact that he was wretched. He knew that he was wretched. But the Laodiceans believed they were blessed. And Jesus tells them, you're not blessed. You're afflicted. You're, re- you're wretched. Had the church in Laodicea opened their eyes? Had they listened to the still small voice of, of Christ? Because listen, Jesus speaks to us all along our Christian walk, doesn't he? He makes it known to us. It's not like this is a big surprise. He's been talking to us all along. When it gets to this point, it's because we've ignored that voice for so long, and now he really has to get our attention. Had they opened their eyes, they would have realized on their own, like Paul did, how wretched they truly were. Jesus says, you're miserable, and that means to be pitied. They were wealthy. They were proud. They were self-sufficient people. Surely they weren't miserable. And other people pitied other people. They would pity other people because they were not in as good a situation financially as they were. But again, if they truly knew their spiritual condition, they were to be pitied because they were miserable, weak, and malnourished in Jesus. Three, Jesus said, you're poor. And this would have really gotten their attention, right? They were the banking capital of the, of the area at that time. What do you mean I'm poor? Have you seen my bank account lately? Well, if you see mine, you know I was poor. But this was the wealthiest, again, of the seven churches. It was the banking capital of the region. And Jesus tells them they're poor, they're destitute, which is what that word means. Because Jesus doesn't measure wealth by the size of our bank account. He measures our wealth by the love that we have in our heart. In their spiritual bank account, that love had been depleted and replaced with the emptiness of indifference, leaving them truly poor and destitute. They had no love for one another, and they had no love for God. They said, if you don't love others, you don't love God. The Bible tells us, right? How can you say, I love God and hate your brother? Jesus says, you're blind. And again, this really hits home to this church. They were the leading manufacturer of an eye salve that helped others see. 
but they could not see their own heart condition. They were blind to their own indifference. You know, when Paul was on the road to Damascus, he was struck blind by the light of Jesus' Shekinah glory. And when the scales fell off Paul's eyes a few days later, he could see more clear then than he had ever could in his lifetime. Paul saw how wretched and miserable and blind and poor he really was. And Jesus wants the eyes of the Laodiceans to be opened in much the same way. And then he says to them, you're naked. Now, another observation that of Jesus that would have gotten their attention is that they were naked because they were world-renowned for their fine wool that they sold all over the world. They clothed the world, and yet they themselves were naked. Jesus exposed them for who they really were. The people around them saw them as blessed because they had everything they needed. They were a wealthy church. They had all they needed, but Jesus exposed them for who they truly were. They were indifferent to the needs of others, and they were blind to that. Their bank accounts may have been full, but their hearts were empty. You know, in the garden of, in the garden with Adam and Eve, they went through their day every day naked. And they didn't know it. They didn't know they were naked. It wasn't until they sinned, until they rebelled against God, that their nakedness was revealed again to them. And so the church in Laodicea had tried to hide their nakedness from God by clothing themselves in the things of the world. This church is in sin, and the sin of indifference, and they had no idea that they were naked before God the whole time until, until Jesus points their sin out to them. And listen, every one of us are naked before God. There is nothing we can do in our lives that we can hide from God. I don't care that you can go to the deepest, darkest corner of the world and hide, but you'll never hide from the eyes of God. And so here's the appeal that Jesus makes to them. Look at verse 18. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire, that you may be rich, and white garments that you may be clothed, that the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed, and anoint your eyes with eye salve that you may see. So Jesus advises them to do three things that will help with their spiritual condition. And he tells them, buy these things from me. Not that we have to buy anything from Jesus, but what Jesus is saying that you can only get these things from me. I am the source of these things. And again, this would have struck a chord with them, right? Because they were wealthy enough to buy anything, anything they needed. Materially, they could buy. But what Jesus is telling them, what you're missing isn't material, it's spiritual. And for that, you cannot purchase it. You can only get that from me. This church was indifferent or lukewarm to everything and everyone around them. You could say they were more concerned with themselves than the lost and dying world that was around them. You could even take it a step further and say that they would be people who would say, as long as I have a ticket to the rapture, you're on your own, pal. You've got to get your own ticket. As long as I'm going, that's all that matters to me. So Jesus tells them that they need to buy something that you cannot buy with money. Something you can only find in Jesus. And by telling them this, he's reminding them that they are not self-sufficient. They need him. That everything they need is in him. So he says the first thing is gold refined in fire. Peter wrote, 
The genuineness of our faith, being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 7. So it's a reminder to them that what they need is not material wealth, but they need to put their faith in Jesus for all that they need. And it would remind them that spiritual riches are far more valuable than any material possessions. That's the blessing we have in Christ. Those blessings are far more valuable than anything that you have in your bank account. Amen? He says, get from me white garments. So their sin has been revealed, and they're naked before Jesus, as we all are. But we can't, because we, as I said, we can't hide anything from him. And up until this point, all that they've done has been in their own righteousness, and their own strength. And we know that our righteousness is what? Filthy rags. That's what it is, filthy rags. King Solomon wrote, the way of the wicked, it is an abomination to the Lord. But he loves him who pursues righteousness. Proverbs 15.9 We pursue righteousness when we pursue Jesus. When we desire to be more like Jesus. When we desire to love others as God loved us. In our own strength, it's impossible to love like that, isn't it? But it's only through Jesus that we can have that sacrificial love. Those pure white robes of righteousness of Jesus are a reminder to us to pursue His righteousness, desiring every day to, to pick up that cross, to die to ourselves and become more like Jesus. What did Paul say, I must de- or John the Baptist, I must decrease so that He can increase in, our, in my life. That should be our prayer every day. Lord, less of me and more of You. And then the third, he says, get your eye salve from me. Here's a manufacturer of world-renowned eye salve, and Jesus is saying, I, I am the only one to have what you need to open your eyes. Jesus is going to open their eyes to, how, to what their spiritual condition truly was. Just like he opened the eyes of Paul on a Damascus road, when those scales fell off, he could see more clear than ever before. Jesus wants our eyes open to the sin that's in our life, sin that keeps us separated from him. It's only when our eyes, only when the eyes of the church of Laodicea were truly open that we can now see what's going on in our lives, and then and only then can we repent and turn from it. Now we know that the church in Laodicea here lasted for centuries after this warning, so it appears that they got it. It appears that they, their eyes truly were open, that they understood and listened to what the word of truth said to them, and they got it. Their eyes were finally open, and they repented of their sin. They corrected it. And then Jesus says to them in verse 19, As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten, therefore be zealous and repent. This is probably the best argument, as I said before, that this is a church of believers. God only chastens his sons and daughters. The author of Hebrews writes, For whom the Lord loves, he chastens and scourges every son and daughter whom he receives. Hebrews 12.6 My son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord, nor detest his correction. For whom the Lord loves, he corrects, just just as a father 
the son in whom he delights, Proverbs 3, verses 11 through 12. So well, on Father's Day, and so I'm going to ask the dads right now to stand. All the dads here that are present with us. Happy Father's Day, by the way. And so it's a perfect point that we're talking about fathers here. Lord, I just pray for your hand upon all the dads here this morning, all the dads listening uh, on the Internet, Lord. I pray for each one of them that your hand would be upon them, that you would strengthen them, Lord, even more so in this day, a day of confusion, a day of evil and wickedness and darkness all around us, Lord. I pray for these men to truly be in your word every day, to draw even closer to you, and Lord, to be that spiritual priest of their home to lead and guide them as they're led and guided by you so bless these men put your hand upon them now lord in jesus name we pray amen thank you guys and happy father's day i thought i forgot didn't you when a loving father carefully watches his son or daughter or should be watching their sons and daughters and do if you're a loving father, you keep your eye on your kids, don't you? And when we see our sons and daughters rebelling and heading for danger, any good father disciplines them to turn them away from that, don't we? It's not always an easy job, is it? Sometimes it creates even more rebellion, but we do it anyway because we know it's the right thing to do. God, our loving father, does the same thing with us as children. When a child of God is heading for sin or resisting, or they're not resisting temptation, rather, our Heavenly Father brings chastening in our lives to correct us and to redirect us back to Him. Now, chastening can come in all different forms. It can come in guilty feelings, unpleasant circumstances, a lack of peace in our lives. There's a number of negative consequences that come from being chastened. And sometimes... Sometimes if it's that severe or that prolonged over time, it could even cause physical illness and even death, as we read in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, where Paul says, that's why some of you are sick, and that's why some of you have fallen asleep or are dead or died, because your sin, you just don't give it up. And the Lord says, listen, before you hurt yourself anymore or hurt anyone else around you, I'm going to take you home to be with me. That's the most loving, gracious, merciful thing that our Lord can do for any one of us who are caught up in that life. But the bottom line is that when we sin, we can expect our loving Father in heaven to not let us get away with it. And I know God never lets me get away with anything. Because he loves us and he desires for us to live a holy life that honors him. And so Jesus is going to chasten these believers in this church if they do not turn, if they do not repent from their sin. And so he advises them to zealously repent, meaning to earnestly desire to turn from what they've been doing for so long. And listen, that's what I love about this. That's what I love about the Lord the most, is that no matter how long you've been involved in something, no matter what that something is, no matter how far you've drifted away from him, we can always repent and return to him. That's why we love the son of the, the story of the prodigal son, right? That as far away as he got, the father was always there waiting for him to return. And that's the same in our lives. We could drift away from God. We can never drift that far away from God. 
that he's not always there waiting for us to return. Amen? Amen. And so that's what he says next to them, that he's longing for their return. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and dine with him and he with me. And so, as I said earlier, hours ago when we started this message, this is one of the, mis- one of the most misquoted verses in the Bible. Jesus is not standing at the heart of a non-believer knocking. He's not waiting for a non-believer to open his heart and ask him in. Jesus is standing at the door of the believer waiting for us to let him in. In the Middle East, the most intimate meal the family enjoyed together was the evening meal. When we went to Israel recently, we had the pleasure of experiencing that at Abraham's tent. We all sat together and experienced the meal together. It was just a great time of fellowship. And so at this meal, they would linger and talk for hours, hours, just catching up, just fellowshipping. And it was a time of intimate fellowship. And that's what Jesus is saying that he longs for from this church. That's what, listen, that's what Jesus is saying that he longs from each one of us. He longs for that intimate time of fellowship from each one of us. This offer, as he's standing outside the door knocking, is for all of us. He's outside of our busy lives. He's waiting for us to let him in. He's waiting for us to to get that time, to set aside that time, to fellowship with him, to have that intimate fellowship with him. That's what the church in Laodicea was missing, that intimate time of fellowship with Jesus. They were Marys, well, they should have been Marys in a world filled with Marthas. And listen, so should you and I. We should be Marys in a world filled filled with Martha's. Now I'm not going to read the whole passage, you Marys, but I'm just going to read a couple of things here from that account. You're probably very familiar with it, but Mary, or Martha rather, is busy preparing a meal for our Lord, right? And her sister Mary is where? Sitting at Jesus' feet, listening to Jesus' stories. Martha complains to Jesus that her sister Mary should be helping her and not goofing off. And this is what Jesus says to Martha. Martha, Martha, you're worried and troubled about many things, but one thing is needed, and Mary has chosen that good part which will not be taken from her. Luke chapter 10, verses 41 through 42. So Jesus is saying from his perspective that the best thing any of us could ever do is to take time out of our busy lives and sit at his feet. And the church of Laodicea knew Jesus. Don't, don't think that they didn't know Jesus. They went to church. They sung all the hymns. They read the scriptures. But that's where it ended. Their relationship with Jesus stayed in the church on Sunday. They had a Sunday relationship with Jesus. A couple hours. Hey, we're going to go visit Jesus for an hour or two. And then we're on our own. We're free. The quality of any relationship that we have in our lives is affected and made better by our relationship or the quality of our relationship that we have with Jesus Christ. Amen? The better you know Jesus, the better the relationships are going to be in your life. And so the reason the Laodiceans were so indifferent to everyone and everything is because their relationship with Jesus was lukewarm at best. And so Jesus says to them in verse 21, 
To him who overcomes, I will grant to sit with me on my throne, as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. So without a doubt, again, this is one of the worst churches that Jesus addresses. And what's really eye-opening for us is that this is the church age that you and I live in right now. Is the church today, for the most part, indifferent to what's going on around us? Indifferent to the sin of the world? And many, like I said, many believers today believe or think or feel as long as I'm out of here in the rapture, that's all I care about. After that, it's every man for themselves. Is that what we're called to do? Haven't we been given the Great Commission? Have we forgotten that? To spread the gospel message everywhere and to everyone? That requires us to take our blinders off, doesn't it? It requires us to start seeing people as Jesus saw them, lost and deceived. Consider that no matter how bad someone is, anyone in here ever bad? So bad? I'm the only one? I think you guys are perfect. I'm surprised you even let me be your pastor. Considering how far people have drifted from the truth, how long they've stayed there, God still loves them. You know, we look around the world today and we see the evil in our world and we see the people committing some of these atrocities, right? And we tend to get angry and mad. And we tend to forget that they are just like we were. But our hearts are deceitfully wicked, the Bible tells us, that we're capable of doing exactly what they're doing. But it's only through the grace of God, right? As such, so were some of you, Paul said. And we forget that God loves them no matter what. God has a passion and a zeal for them to be saved. He wants them all, the whole of mankind, for God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son, that you, whoever believe in him, will have eternal life. God wants all to be overcomers, wants all to sit on the throne with him. That's God's perspective. That's what God wants. That's his heart, and that should be our heart as well. It's about Jesus. It's about his love for mankind, and we cannot afford as a church today to be indifferent to that. Amen? Let it so be. And look at verse 22 as we finish out these seven letters. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So as we finish up these letters, the seven churches, we're going to take a few minutes here and remember what we learned in these seven churches. So briefly, to the church of Ephesus, it's a reminder to us as believers to not let our love for Jesus grow cold. To the church in Smyrna, it's a reminder to us to not fear the persecution of this world, to have faith over fear. To Pergamum, we learned to trust in God, to keep strong and faithful and not compromise our faith no matter what. The church in Thyatira, we learned to avoid sexual and spiritual adultery and to not tolerate sin, not only in our lives, but in the world around us. To Sardis, we learned, wake up, wake up, strengthen what remains, keep your faith alive. And then to the church in Philadelphia, we learned that the Lord has opened the doors to ministry for us. 
to stand fast on the word of God and not deny his name. And of course, the church of Laodicea, to not be indifferent to the need of a savior for all those around us. Keep the door of fellowship with Jesus open in our lives. So this is what the Spirit has said to all of us who have ears. So if you don't know Jesus today, and you're watching, or if you're here with us this morning, you don't know him, I want you to take a little walk with me down a road, a Roman road. And I pray that as we get to the end of this road, that you will find him. We call it the Romans road because Paul wrote this letter to the Romans, and we've taken verses out of this letter and pieced them or strung them together to give us a picture of salvation. It's an evangelical message. And I want to remind you, all of you who are listening, all of you who think that when you die, you go into the ground, and that's it. Life is over. So what's the common thing that we always say, eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow you may die. Well, that's true for some. We could die at any time, but it's what happens afterwards that's a concern. You see, because we are all made, and if you read the book of Genesis, we were all made in God's image, all of us, not just the believers, but all of us, and that means we were made eternal beings. We are all eternal beings, meaning that all of us, all, will live into eternity, for all eternity. Daniel said some will wake into joy and others will awake into everlasting contempt and shame. But we will awaken. Everyone who sleeps in the dust of the ground will awaken again. You will live into eternity. And if you know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, you will have eternal life and not be, and be with him for all eternity. And if you don't know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, you will spend eternity separated from him. So let's go through, or let's take a trip down the Roman road. Romans 3.10 says, As it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. It's not our deeds, it's not our works, there's nothing we can do to save ourselves. It is only through Jesus Christ, because our works our dead works. Our righteousness is like filthy rags. Second, Romans 3.23, For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We're all sinners. Psalm 51 says we were born into sin. Sin is part of who we are. And the only way that that can be corrected is to come to Jesus Christ and have those sins washed away, forgiven as far as the east is from the west. Third, Romans 5.8, but God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Christ died for each and every one of us. Not just believers, but for the whole world. And not just for the sin of that day, but for all sin, past, present, and future. Number four, Romans 5.12. Therefore, just as through, through one man sin entered the world, and death through sin, and thus death spread to all men, because all sinned. Sin entered into this world through Adam in the Garden of Eden. And it is through the death of Jesus Christ that those sins are forgiven. Number five, Romans 6.23, For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So the wages for our sin is eternal death. But the gift of God is eternal life, and that only comes through Jesus Christ. Number six, 
that if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. And that is my favorite verse in Romans. Next to the next one, Romans, uh, the seventh part of this, Romans 10, 13. For whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. So if in your heart you want to know Jesus, you want to, the only way that we're saved from the tribulation to come, and believe me, it's knocking at the door, is to put our faith and hope in, in Jesus Christ. There is no other way. And so if you want that peace and assurance of knowing that you have eternal life, then I want to pray a prayer with you this morning. And as I've said so many times in the past, it's not a magic prayer. There's no magic words here. But if you mean this in your heart, then you will, as the Bible tells us, be saved. So pray along with me if you don't know Jesus. Dear God, I realize that I'm a sinner. And I could never reach heaven by my own good deeds. There's nothing that I can do in my own strength that will open the doors to heaven for me. Right now, I place my faith in you, Lord Jesus. I believe that God rose you from the dead, that you sit on the right hand of God, the Father in heaven, and that you are coming in glory to judge the living and the dead. And Lord, I submit my life to you and ask that you please forgive me for the sin in my life, past, present, and future. Fill me, Lord, with your Holy Spirit that I may walk with you all the days of my life. Thank you, Lord, for accepting me into your kingdom, for making me part of your inheritance, and making me a child of God. It is in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen. And so if you've prayed that prayer along with me, welcome to the kingdom of God. Welcome as a child of God. Please stand as we close in worship this morning. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you how amazing these letters have been. And Lord, I pray that each one of us takes away from this, from these studies, something that will help us draw even closer to you.